Miss Shaw here. Over the next couple of weeks, we will be releasing some history podcasts to help develop your learning. The series will cover crime and punishment. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to your favourite teacher. Today, we'll be examining crime, punishment and law enforcement in Anglo-Saxon England. So, let's start by taking a look at what we mean when we say Anglo-Saxon England and looking at the type of place England was at this time. Well, we start our story in the year 1000 AD and end in the year 1066. By 1000 AD, England was ruled by a single king rather than being ruled as a series of separate kingdoms. 90% of the population lived in rural areas and although it's hard to pinpoint an exact figure, we think that the population was somewhere between 1,700,000 and 2 million strong. Many people would not venture outside of their hamlet or village during their lifetime and although it was the king and the nobility who determined the law, at day-to-day -day level it was the local community that played an important role in law enforcement. As in most Anglo-Saxon communities, everyone knew each other and were tied or connected in some way. By the end of this episode, you should have a clear understanding of what influenced the law during the Anglo-Saxon period. How the law was enforced, how innocence or guilt was determined, and how people were punished for different crimes. So, let's begin with what influenced the law at this time. It was the king who made the law. When King Ethelred had come to rule between 978 and 1016 AD, there were numerous conflicts in the Scottish border areas. But Ethelred had managed to weaken these Viking attacks and gain a tighter hold over England. Now, with a more united kingdom and a single ruler, it seemed logical that the power of lawmaking should shift away from local communities and be placed more firmly in the hands of the king. People in Anglo-Saxon England believed in the king's peace. The idea that it was a king's duty to make and uphold the law so that the people could live in peace. There was a strict social order that enabled the king to uphold the law. At the top was the king who made the laws. He gave land to the nobles who ruled smaller areas across the kingdom. In return for this land, they were to ensure that the land was upheld in their local area and they appointed people called Shire Reeves to help them do this. Sometimes, powerful nobles could also influence the law if the king called on them for advice. Below the nobles were the freemen. These were men who were able to rent or buy small pieces of land from the nobles. They had to follow the law, but they didn't have any influence over it. Finally, there were the serfs. These people had no power over the law either and didn't own any land. They worked for other people and they didn't earn much money. In small communities in which the mass of the population lived, collective responsibility was expected. But there were a number of growing towns, particularly London, York and Southampton, where it became easier to commit crimes. As the population was larger and there were more buildings and goods, as well as coin currency as a result of trade. There were also large communities evolving around areas that had abbeys, places where monks and nuns would live as they needed people to help with the running of the buildings. So, what was classed as a crime in Anglo-Saxon England? Well, that was up to the king, but basically, actions that threatened the status quo, that is, the way things worked, were definitely classified as criminal acts. 
These type of crimes were known as crimes against authority. For example, treason, where somebody had plotted against the king or attacking a nobleman. Then there were crimes against the person, that's murder or assault. Moral crimes, such as sex outside of marriage or not doing what the church said, which demonstrates the heavy influence of the church at this time. In fact, the church could punish people who break such laws. And then there were crimes against property, such as robbery and theft, with theft being the most common crime during this period. So, how were criminals or those accused of crime caught? Well, the most common crime was theft, and most people lived in small communities. Therefore, if somebody saw another person committing a crime, they had to raise the hue and cry. This meant shouting for help and keeping the alert going so that everybody could run after the criminal and capture them. It was also the rule that at the time it was a victim's duty to bring the accused to justice. And as communities were tight-knit, they were expected to help out. At regular intervals, one man from each hundred and one man from each tithing had to meet with the King's Shire Reeve, whose role it was to enforce the law and it would be men from the hundreds and tithings that helped to catch the criminals for the King's Shire Reeve. Interestingly, the word Shire Reeve later morphed into the word Sheriff. So, we can see that although the King and the Church played an important role in making the laws, it was largely the community who helped to catch criminals. But what happened once somebody accused of committing a crime was caught? One important element of establishing guilt in the Anglo-Saxon period was the taking of oaths. An oath is a promise, and in Anglo-Saxon times, people accused of a crime were made to swear an oath that what they said before God was the truth. A person could swear an oath that they were guilty or innocent, and other members of the community would be also allowed to swear an oath and speak in support of the accused. Again, this demonstrates the influence of the church at this point in history. Often, there was no punishment given to the accused but because communities were very small and tight-knit, it was unlikely that the accused could get away with such behaviour for a second time. However, if a person had been caught red-handed, for example when the hue and cry had been raised, then they didn't get the privilege of swearing the oath. The influence of the church can also be seen when we examine the use of trial by ordeal. Trial by ordeal was used when it was felt that there wasn't enough evidence for people to decide innocence or guilt and therefore the task was handed over to God. The problem with trial by ordeal was that it could often be a lose-lose situation. Let's take a look at some examples and hopefully you'll see what I mean. First, trial by hot iron. In this case, the accused would have his hand burnt with the use of a hot iron. So to start with, not great if you were innocent. Now, the hand would then be bandaged and if it healed well, then obviously God was showing that the defendant was innocent. But if it didn't heal, then it was God's way of saying that they were guilty. So, not the most humane system to start with, but taking into account the fact that hygiene was not what it is today, it was often the case that wounds wouldn't heal. Perhaps you may believe this was because God was apportioning guilt, or could it just be that the lack of cleanliness meant that it would never really heal, whether guilty or innocent? Second was trial by hot water. Here, the principles were the same, but the hot iron was swapped for boiling water. Finally, there was trial by cold water. The defendant would be thrown into the cold water to see whether they sank or not. So you would think that if they floated, they were innocent, right? Well, actually, no. If the defendant floated, they were deemed guilty, as the assumption was that the pure water had rejected them, whereas if they sunk, they had been accepted. 
The floor, well, you may have been found innocent if you sunk, but you could also end up dead. Now, we finally move on to looking at how those who were found guilty were punished. For lesser crimes such as public disorder, the stocks or the pillory would be used. This meant that the criminal was either placed in a pillory, which secured their arms and neck, or the stock in which their ankles would be locked in. They would be positioned in public and would have to remain in the pillory or stocks for days. This would not only be uncomfortable, but it would also cause embarrassment too. People would often hurl abuse or even rotten vegetables at the person. Therefore, it was supposed to humiliate the criminal and act as a deterrent to others. For other more serious crimes, then rather than humiliation, punishments were intended to deter others from committing similar crimes and to gain retribution or vengeance for the crime. For example, assault and stealing could carry the penalty of being maimed, meaning that you were left with a permanent scar and sometimes even with an eye being gouged out or a hand chopped off. For criminal acts such as treason or betraying the lord of the manor, you could face the death penalty. So, for crimes that challenged the status quo and the king's power, the punishments were harsh. In the case of murder, something called the blood feud had been used. The basic idea was that if somebody murdered a family member, then you could murder them. But then the members of the murderer's family would then come and kill their killers, and you could see how the story would continue. So in order to replace this, the Weir Guild or Man Price was introduced, where the murderer would have to pay a fine. The higher the status of the victim, the higher the cost of the fine. If we start to recap, a few trends become apparent. The first is that the King's influence over which acts were classified as criminal and how they were punished grew as time went on. Second, that the Church also had a heavy influence over crimes and establishing innocence and guilt. And finally, that the community played a vital role in law enforcement. It's important to keep track of the trends that you spot over the span of your course so that you can compare these trends against trends that are visible in other periods, so that you can start to spot examples of change and continuity, and also be able to explain the reasons behind them. I'm Miss Wainer, and we've been examining crime, law enforcement and punishment in the Anglo-Saxon period. I hope you're finding the Crime and Punishment podcasts useful. I'm Miss Shaw with your favourite teacher. Thanks for listening. Thank you.